Hey everybody, welcome into the Potato Cast, America's finest healthcare podcast named after a cat. My name is Mike Hess. I am a respiratory therapist by training, but what I'm trying to do with this program is to break down complex issues throughout the healthcare system so that we can all work together to make them better. Uh, if you support what we're doing here, please feel free to check out my other media on uh, YouTube and Facebook under the brand COPD Navigator. If you like these offerings, check out some of the other things we're doing at patreon.com slash bestnest for more information. Finally, if you have any suggestions at all for the program, please feel free to let me know at potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Looking forward to hearing from you. Now, on with the show. So this was not the episode I was planning on recording this week, I'll be honest with you. Um, I originally had a different idea in mind, but this week was the first time I got legit hate mail. Um, I shouldn't say mail. Uh, it was a Facebook post. And it really kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, see, a few years back, I got it in my head that um, I wanted to try to do something to improve access to portable oxygen concentrators. Um, these are pieces of equipment that are very complex, uh, makes them very expensive. And because they're very expensive, there's a lot of rigmarole that you have to go through in order to get one that works well for you. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not able to do that uh, for a variety of reasons. Medicare has some um, complexities, we'll say, when trying to get it reimbursed. A lot of uh, private insurers have the same kind of deal. Uh, and it's one of those pieces of equipment that has to be very well matched between somebody's needs and the device capabilities. So I wanted to, again, try to, to improve access to that. And I thought, well, okay, you know, we're trying to uh, improve access to, to this stuff and try to get people, give, their, give them their freedom of motion back. And we're trying to, you know, liberate them from being stuck at home on a, on a regular concentrator and blah, blah, blah. So I had the idea to start uh, what I would hope would grow into kind of this nonprofit deal. It was essentially a, a preliminary, very preliminary uh, fundraiser type of deal called Freedom to Breathe. Which I thought was very clever. I was rather proud. I made myself a butterfly logo that was kind of lung-shaped and still butterfly and called the freedom to breathe. And I thought it was great. I ended up not really going anywhere. I mean, it's just not something that's still, even now, is not high on a lot of people's radars. Um, I don't know the first thing about trying to run a nonprofit or trying to launch one off the ground. Um, a lot of confounding factors never really went anywhere. And so it just kind of languished for a while. I thought I had deactivated the page. Every now and then I would see, I would get a Facebook notification that uh, somebody liked it, somebody followed it, what have you. But still, there was, I don't know, maybe a dozen people. And then all of a sudden had a comment out of nowhere. Again, I have not posted to this thing in a couple of years now, as a matter of fact. Um, and just excoriating me. The post was about, you know, we had just gotten, we had gotten one donor to our GoFundMe-like designed for a nonprofit kind of thing. And I was celebrating that. And I was like, you know, well, let's hope for more. And this person was saying, um, how, why would anybody donate to you? All you're doing is putting out misinformation and you're horrible and you're, you're literally killing people. I hope you burn in hell. Literally, I mean, some of that is paraphrased, but the end of it was, I hope you burn in hell. And I thought, wow, that's uh, unexpected. That was a thing. 
And uh, all, so I, I didn't really know how to react to it because, like I said, I, I have not done anything with this page for quite some time. So I replied back and said, I'm sorry. Uh, I think, though, you may have us confused with somebody else. Um, I explained this was back in the day to do oxygen concentrators, and we have literally done nothing in years. So, okay. And to their credit, this person did uh, apologize and deleted their comment, uh, which is why I can't read it verbatim. Um, which was totally fair. And then now I have learned my lesson and I have deactivated that page, but I got to thinking, what could possibly set somebody off like that? What, why would this whole idea of freedom to breathe be so troubling? And then I got to thinking, well, the obvious thing is I know a lot of these folks out there who are complaining about uh, mandatory masking in various localities and, and political divisions um, are complaining about it's a violation of their freedom. And so I thought maybe this would be part of it. And sure enough, um, I was able to connect it eventually with, uh, you know, some, some internet searching, some very rudimentary basic uh, searching. And I was kind of surprised I hadn't realized it hadn't put it together at first. But there's also been this whole deal lately where supposedly if you display this very official looking ID card that says you have some kind of anomaly or a pathophysiological problem that prohibits you from wearing a mask that a company cannot discriminate you and it's, it's designed to be intimidating because it has... You will be subject to fines and we are reporting to the, you know, the government and blah, blah, blah. And in the seal of this pseudo document is a logo for the Freedom to Breathe Administration. So clearly what had happened was this person had happened across Google or was searching for Freedom to Breathe Administration or, or what have you, and came across our humble little web page or Facebook page. And I can't entirely say I disagree with the beef. Um, I kind of disagree with, with what goes on about that or how they went about it, but elected to to spew that out at us. And again, you know, I, I, can't, I can hardly hold it against them, to be real honest. Then I got to thinking, you know, what what is this whole idea of masks creating breathing problems? I mean, I, as regular followers of the Potato Cast know, I work in COPD. I work with the poster children, so to speak, of people who shouldn't be wearing masks, and or or not they should be wearing masks. The people who, if anybody has a reason to not wear a mask, it's these folks. It's people with asthma. It's people with COPD. It's it's people who have a literal obstruction inside of their lungs that prevents them from exhaling fully. And if you put a piece of fabric in front of your face, you're going to give uh, additional what's called expiratory resistance, and you're going to make it even harder to exhale. So these people are, like I said, the poster children for wanting to not wear a mask. And yet, almost to a person, they are wearing masks. These are the folks who are masked up, even though it's to protect others, not to protect themselves. 
they're the ones wearing the mask because again, it's kind of this idea of trying to protect you know, the people around you and be part of the community and so on and so forth. So th this is not intended to be a, a, again, political screed about you know, wearing masks and all that stuff. There, there's enough of that going on right now. And I certainly, again, if you've listened to this program for more than 30 seconds in the past, you would probably have a pretty good idea of where I stand on this and a lot of the other public health issues that are facing us right now. But it also ties in with a question that I put forth to our Zoom support group uh, that I run um, called the, I have a Facebook page called COPD Navigator, and so we call it the Ready Room. We have a very nautical theme, so we call it the Ready Room. And I was talking to a few people who have been living with COPD for a very long time, and I was asking, why is it that we so deprioritize breathing problems in our healthcare system, at least certainly in the U.S.? And I would argue around the world because, you know, a lot of these are global issues. I mean, I, I follow the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. I follow the World Health Organization. I follow all these groups that constantly talk about the existing and growing burden of conditions like COPD and asthma, you know, especially as we tie in with, with air pollution and things like that. So... Again, I got to thinking, you know, we have very effective advertisement campaigns for things like diabetes. Um, you know, the, the CDC, I believe it was, has had a thing where uh, one in three people has prediabetes. So it's uh, you or your barber or your barber's barber, I believe is what the, the billboard said. A few years back, there was the... Uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, ice bucket challenge that raised a ton of money for ALS research, ALS advocacy. It was a huge awareness thing. You know, there were a lot of discussions. People were finally discussing for the first time, what is ALS? What, what is it other than a disease a famous baseball player had? It was a fantastic awareness campaign that, you know, it was one of those things that just happened to become viral. We have a lot of these targeted campaigns. We have, as somebody mentioned in the, in the video, come October, everybody is wearing pink for breast cancer. Um, we have all of these awareness campaigns for all of these other conditions, but breathing, nothing. COPD is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Well, let me correct that. It is the third leading medical cause of death in the United States because there's a lot of trauma and things like that. Accidental death gets lumped into what's in the third spot right now. It is the third leading cause of death around the world. And in many subdivisions of the U.S., like my beloved home state of Michigan, it is the third leading cause of death. No matter how you slice it, it's one of the leading causes of death and a leading cause of morbidity, a leading cause of disability, a leading cause of healthcare expenditures, it, it's a big footprint on the healthcare system. Similarly, asthma, huge impact, especially with kids. 10 million missed school days annually in kids in the U.S. Who knows how many days of work are missed because people literally cannot breathe. I mean, you have a bad asthma day, you have an asthma flare-up, you're going to miss some school or some work. You're going to leave the workforce prematurely. We're this is what we call tend to call indirect costs. We see it in COPD. We see it in asthma. 
all of these lost productivity days, whether it's people in the workforce or being lost to having some of their, their life, their productive life taken away because they are no longer able to be in the workforce. Lung cancer, far bigger impact than breast cancer, even in women, uh, than prostate cancer than colon cancer. But we have all of these awareness campaigns and we're changing diets and we're doing this and we're doing that and we still don't really talk. Now, I will give credit to the American Lung Association. They have made some strides there with their, their turquoise takeovers, their lung force, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the impact of lung cancer in women. That has gotten some traction. But still, if I, add, if I walked up to you on the street and said, what is the awareness color for breast cancer, you would immediately know it was pink. The NFL, for example, goes, oh, you know, and we can get into you know, performative advocacy and all that stuff. They get to sell more stuff if they turn it pink, but everybody goes pink in October. If I come up to you and say, what's the advocacy color for lung cancer? You've got a one in, what, 65,000? depending on what your, uh, uh, that's an old, uh, old computer jockey uh, number there. It, whatever, how you, you have a random chance of guessing the color, but you're probably not going to get it. You probably don't know the advocacy color for COPD or for alpha-1 antitrypsin or asthma or cystic fibrosis. These are things that we don't think about. Despite the fact that as uh, we used to say in one of our professional videos at, uh, in respiratory care, you can go arguably weeks without eating. You can go days without water, but you're only going to make it a couple of minutes without air, without breathing, without oxygen. Oxygen is a fundamental provider of life. You cannot get by without it. You cannot get by without breathing. Half the time in an ICU, part of the issue is we just need, we're doing the work of keeping you breathing so that your body can heal. You know, we're taking that load off because if you get too weak to breathe, you will die. So why don't we think about that? Why don't we look at some of these, some of these breathing issues and put that relative importance on them? One of the members of the, the support group said, well, you know, particularly with COPD, we, there tends to be a stigma in healthcare regarding COPD because roughly 75 to 80% of cases are caused by tobacco smoking. We used to think they were all caused by tobacco smoking, or, or pretty much all of them. Um, but we have discovered that there is a sizable percentage that is not ever caused by smoking. People who have never smoked a cigarette, people who have rare or no exposure to secondhand smoke, it's hard to get no exposure these days, but... Uh, controlling for all those variables, there are about one in five people with COPD who have not smoked. It doesn't come from smoking. We know in the, the developing world, as they call it, we know most, or uh, I can't remember the exact statistics, so I hesitate to say most, but we know that many, many cases actually come from the burning of biomass fuels. We've got people who are still using wood and coal and all these things to cook and to heat their homes. And we've got people who are sitting in that, and that's how they get COPD. It's the pollutants. It's not tobacco. It's other particulate matter. It's other pollutants in their environment that is causing this stuff. 
But still, because we thought for a very long time most of this stuff is coming from tobacco, there's this stigma of, well, you did it to yourself. You were a big dummy. You started smoking. You never bothered to quit. And so now you've done it to yourself, and I'm not going to put a whole lot of effort into it. And unfortunately, that stigma does persist. That is absolutely true. I've seen it a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I'm big enough to admit that there was, when I very first started, before I understood how the power of addiction and the power of dependence and social determinants and things like that, I kind of thought that myself. I was like, well, okay, you know, I'm not going to blame you for it, but this is where you're at. But we can also say that same thing for a lot of the other conditions that we're taking more seriously. Again, I'll put diabetes out there as a great example. Uh, what they usually call type 2 non-insulin dependent diabetes, the kind that you're not necessarily born with, the kind where you get into insulin resistance and you get into a lot of these issues, almost inevitably, to our current understanding, caused by poor nutrition. Now, again, we can talk about social determinants. We can talk about all the issues that go along with um, you know, causing poor nutrition. But at the end of the day, if you eat like garbage, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems with your blood sugar, diabetes. You're going to have problems with your heart. You're going to have high blood pressure. We have uh, maybe not so much anymore, but for a very long time, you couldn't go to a pharmacy or grocery store without having one of those machines that you stuck your arm in and it took your blood pressure. We had awareness of high blood pressure, even though, again, it's usually something you do to yourself. Combination of bad nutrition, low exercise, lots of other factors. And again, I'm not guilting that. I'm not saying it's less important or anything like that. Not at all. But I don't necessarily buy the argument fully that we don't pay attention to our breathing simply because of the stigma. Because again, controlling for some of those other factors doesn't appear to be the case. So what is it? Well, I'm going to give you my thought here. My biggest thought is breathing is one of those things that we know enough about to be dangerous, as they say. And the lay people. I mean, we have a pretty solid understanding of how respiration works, how ventilation works. We clinically know a lot of these things. But from a lay perspective, you know just enough about breathing to be dangerous. You don't normally think about it until there's something that goes wrong because breathing is one of those oddball body functions that is partly autonomous and partly conscious. You can certainly adjust your breathing. You can, you can take the deep breath, you can blow it out, you can blow out your birthday candles, you can hold your breath. Uh, if you're a kid, you can hold your breath until you're done with your tantrum. You know, you can affect your breathing to a degree. At some point, the autonomic system kicks back in. You can only hold your breath for so long before your body says, uh-uh, time to breathe, and takes back over. And on the, the flip side to that, you also don't have to repeatedly say to yourself 12 to 20 times a minute, okay, breathe, okay, exhale, okay, in. Okay, you don't have to do that. That's automatic. And so unless we are really conscious of it, unless we're really intentional about it, we don't really think of our breathing. It's not a subjective priority. Now, when we do become aware of our breathing, think about the kind of cases where that comes into play. Usually you are doing some kind of activity that is more strenuous than your baseline. 
which is kind of a euphemism for exercise. But if you're, I mean, even if you're not actually doing formal exercise, you're taking out, you know, you're cleaning out the garage and you've got all this trash or you're shoveling snow. And when you're doing something that is beyond your normal baseline, then you start needing more oxygen. You need to, your metabolism kicks up a little bit more. You got to take in more oxygen. You got to blow out that carbon dioxide. You start to become aware of being short of breath. You're breathing faster. You're breathing harder. You're doing all these things. But then it goes away. Without a whole lot of work on your own, you eventually return to that baseline. It's not something you have to control. You can try and adjust how fast you get there. You know, there's the different philosophies. Well, take a deep breath and then, you know, hands on your hips, hands on your head, whatever it is. You can make some adjustments there, but even doing absolutely nothing, you do return to your normal state of breathing. So the context that most people have for their breathing is that if it's bad, it goes away. This is not saying that it's dumb or that people are dumb about breathing or anything like that. It is ignorance in the sense that people do not have the fundamental understanding of how breathing works to realize that that's not always the case. There are people out there, particularly things like COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, many cases of asthma, that their breathing is never normal. You are always short of breath. I have people with CO, that, that's why people have oxygen with COPD. That's why we did the freedom, freedom to breathe thing. We have a fundamental, we have a group of people who have fundamental problems with their breathing at rest, not doing a darn thing. They are sitting on the couch doing absolutely no exertion and they are still short of breath. It's very difficult to conceptualize that because we simply don't have a frame of reference for it. Most people just cannot do that unless you actually force yourself to breathe through a straw for a couple of minutes, which is probably the closest analog we have and certainly the most common one. You don't get that sensation. And so you don't have that understanding. Unless you see it in action, you can't understand it. And it's my contention that that is why we have such a misconception about what is actually difficulty in breathing. I saw a post on Twitter, some pundit of some kind, who again was poo-pooing this whole idea of wearing masks in the middle of a respiratory pandemic, which again, from a respiratory standpoint, a public health standpoint, blows my mind, but that's neither here nor there. My, that's my 10-second soapbox for this episode, I suppose. So one of these commentators on Twitter posted that I put on a mask and literally within seconds, I am struggling to breathe, struggling to breathe. Now, again, as a respiratory therapist, I have seen people who are literally struggling to breathe. I have people who are in horrible asthma attacks who we have had to put breathing tube down their throat in order to actually force them to continue to breathe, to keep their airway open. I have seen people who are gas truly gasping, truly struggling for a variety of reasons. The only way that if you put a mask on and you are struggling to breathe is if the mask is made out of aluminum foil or clingy plastic or something like that. It is incomprehensible. 
Because again, people don't really understand the idea of struggling to breathe. Now, I'm not going to tell you that breathing in a, especially in a fabric mask, is seamless. I mean, I have noticed it myself. I was, I for out of curiosity, because I try to be as scientific as possible when I can, uh, I put on a mask and then went for, um, <laughs> not a runner, anybody who knows me knows I'm not a runner, but went for, we'll call it a vigorous walk. Um, and I could tell a difference. I could, I could definitely tell that the mask does impact the, the breathing dynamics to a degree. But even though I am not in as good a physical shape as I should be, I don't have a lung condition. And I can tell you that I was certainly not struggling to breathe. But again, people don't have context for what that is. To a degree, we can excuse that because a lot of times shortness of breath can be very subjective. I, I liken it a lot to the infamous pain chart of you have zero to ten and then you have the five smiley to frowny faces and, you know, one person's five might be another person's nine. I mean, it's all very subjective. And when you haven't experienced something before and again, you don't have a frame of reference for it, it can be very scary. Again, my general contention is that People simply do not understand what it is really like to be short of breath. And I think if we did, if we had a more global understanding of the sensations involved, if we had a more comprehensive understanding of when you can't breathe, you really can't do anything else, and that there are people who don't get better so they can never do anything else, I think we're going to be a lot better off. I will also say that we have some issue with people not understanding it because it's not one of those things where you quote unquote look sick. You know, it, it's somewhat of a cliche in a lot of the, the chronic condition communities that you don't necessarily look sick. You know, if somebody is missing a limb, or if somebody is blinded or something like that, you can often tell, not that you should, but you can tell by looking at them. Obviously, a missing limb can be hard to overlook, something like that. Um, if somebody is bleeding, you can tell that they are injured. But if somebody has a condition like asthma or COPD, you can't necessarily tell that. And so again, well, you look okay, you, you look fine, because it, this is where the stigma does come back to a certain degree, because a lot of times that representation is somebody who does look or act kind of sickly. You know, it was when I was doing a little bit of the, the background for this, I was looking at the, the old movie, The Goonies, and you know, I was thinking back to some of those old 80s movies where the kid that had quote-unquote asthma usually not using their inhaler properly, but they were kind of weak and nerdy and they couldn't, you know, they weren't, um, they couldn't exercise, they, they weren't active, they couldn't keep up, all that kind of thing. And nobody wants to look like that. And so a lot of folks minimize their lung problems as much as they can. Even today, kids don't want to look different in general, so they don't want to use their inhalers in school in, in front of all their friends because, again, there's a stigma of being sick or being weak or being this or that. And a lot of adults are like that, too. A lot of adults are hesitant to use their supplemental oxygen 
here come those concentrators again, but they're reluctant to use those because the nasal cannula, which is the most common delivery method for oxygen, is a, various, er, is a very obvious indicator that you are quote-unquote sick. And nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to be sickly, I'll say that. Nobody wants to be sick, but certainly nobody wants to be sickly. And so a lot of times these conditions are hidden. We forget that this is a neighbor, this is a relative, this is a friend, this is a coworker that are dealing with all these things because people work so hard to hide it. They do all these adaptations. They're taking the elevator instead of the stairs. They're doing all of these things until it is absolutely too late. And then you really do look sickly because, again, you can't breathe and you can't move. And that kind of reinforces this version of the stigma, because if you don't look like that, if you're not emaciated and you're not uh, weak and you're not bedridden and you're not toting equipment around, then you're not sick. And if you're not sick, then your condition isn't that bad. And that is one of the underlying things that we, on the clinical side certainly, but we all need to work together to fix. We all need to start walking in each other's shoes a little bit more so that we can understand some of the context. And I'll tell you, even as a clinician who has been focusing on this for several years now, I have had my eyes open recently. This pandemic situation has really put a lot of things into relief for me. Sharp relief, not whew, sigh of relief, but they've put things into sharp relief for me. Because something unusual that I noticed right toward the beginning is when I was working with a lot of my folks with COPD, I was, you know, kind of reminding them, well, you know, you got to make sure you uh, especially have to be isolating. You have to be wearing masks. You have to be protecting yourself. You have to be washing your hands. And despite talking to people from all over the country and sometimes even different parts of the world, there was a pretty common refrain that they were already doing this stuff. And I realized that this was not really new to them. I was coming into that world. It was totally different for me, but it was kind of business as usual for a lot of these folks. And, you know, again, that's coming from somebody who has worked with these folks and listened to the stories for many, many years. And it was still eye-opening to me. And now I challenge myself to, in the future, because I also have to remember that I get to, at some point, even though the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel seems awfully far away right now as I record this, someday we are going to be able to return to some degree of normal. Someday we're not going to have to isolate so much. Someday we're not going to have to be quite as cautious. But these folks will. And I challenge myself to, when the time comes, to remember that. And to allow this experience, instead of my assumptions, to color my interactions with them. Instead of assuming I might know what, what they feel like, I can think back and I can remember, well, wait a minute. Remember when we were all in that global pandemic and the world was going to end and we had to change all of our behaviors? That's what people are dealing with right now. That's the day-to-day. -day. So, the moral of the story is, whether you are bawling somebody out on Facebook, whether you are trying to figure out what disease states are worthy of your donation, because I all know I know we all have limited resources, especially now and in the pandemic still, 
when you are deciding on who to support, what to support, what causes to support, take a moment and think about your breathing. Think about how important it is and think about how your life would be different if you were not able to catch your breath anymore. Think about how life would be different if the pandemic never ended for you, especially if it ended for everyone else. And then choose to support or to yell or to chastise or to do whatever you want. Remember that everybody is going through their own journey and remember how important it is to have the actual freedom to breathe. All right, folks, that's a wrap for another episode of the Potato Cast. I appreciate you spending the last half hour or so with me. Uh, if you want to support what we're doing here with the Potato Cast and our other media adventures at the Best Nest LLC, please hit us up on patreon.com slash bestnest. And you can look at some of our other media efforts. You can drop us a line and let us know what other kind of resources you would like to see. Uh, you can also find us on various places on the internet. Uh, COPD Navigator is our respiratory-focused uh, channel. And then we also have uh, The Best Nest, which our keystone program there right now is Fight to Flight with Kelly and Mike, talking about a little bit more uh, general uh, better living and healthcare topics. Please feel free to hit us up on there. And again, if you support what we're doing, drop us a few bucks here or there. Uh, we want to continue to bring these messages to as many people as we possibly can, and we need your support to do that. So let us know what you need to hear. Let us know how we can help you. And above all else, keep taking care of yourself and taking care of each other.